As we begin our message, I want to ask you to reflect on what it is that you think creates unity with other people. What do you think creates unity with other people? We might think about our shared passions, so uh, the footy teams that we support, so being a Crow supporter, being a Power supporter, supporting another team, congratulations if you're a Melbourne supporter, uh, but uh, our footy teams help to create a sense of unity, um, but the other hobbies that we have, the things that we do, the TV shows that we watch, that can create a sense of unity with other people. Sometimes our geography can create a sense of unity with other people. So many of us would say that we're Western suburbs people, and uh, many of you, I'm aware, have been Western suburbs people for a very, very long time, and so you would definitely see that as a part of what unites you together with other Western suburbs people. Uh, but some of us might have grown up in the country, and so we would see ourselves at our core as country people, and so we kind of feel a sense of united, uh, unitedness with other country people when we meet them. Sometimes our shared experiences can create a sense of unity for us as well. And this can happen from a positive sense and a negative sense. So from a positive sense, uh, if we go to a concert, that can create a sense of unity with the other people that we're there with. Or if we go and see a show, if we go away on a trip, all of those things can bring a sense of unity. But also when we go through a difficult time, so for people who have battled through cancer, there's a sense of unity that comes with other people who fought that same battle. For people who have recovered from addiction, there's a sense of unity that comes in meeting together with other people who've been through a similar set of circumstances. And so as we continue to begin this new chapter as a church family, today we want to spend a bit of time talking about what unites us together as a church. We started this series last week where we're going to take our first month to really talk about the key things that hold us together and unite us together. And we're using the book of Ephesians to be able to dig into that, so some different passages from there. Uh, But last week we also uh, handed out these reading plans, and so if you want to grab one of those, it's not too late. You can either catch up or just jump in from tomorrow. Uh, But this is an opportunity for us to read through the book of Ephesians together as one of the ways of aligning us, because there's so much in the book of Ephesians that helps us to understand what it is that God has called us to and why it is that we are family together. Last week, we spent some time exploring what our hopes and dreams are and the reality that Paul says that God can do infinitely more than anything that we can ask or imagine, anything that we can hope or dream of as we begin this new chapter, God can actually do infinitely more than that. And over the next three weeks, starting today, we're going to take some time to look at our core values. Jesus-centred, spiritual family, and seeing lives change. These three statements we came up with a number of years ago as a way of being able to articulate what's at the heart of us as a church. And these things shape the decisions that we make, the priorities that we have, uh, and the direction that we head in together. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to take some time to explore what those mean and how they fit into the life of our church. So you have your teaching notes inside of the newsletter. You can feel free to grab those if you'd like to jot things down as we make our way through today's message. And you can also open up to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to have a look at verses 3 to 10 in a moment. But honestly, I could have picked about 15 different passages for today's message because the vast majority of Ephesians is all about what we're going to talk about, Jesus, and what it means for us to be able to be Jesus-centred. But figured we might as well start at the very beginning because, as Dave said earlier, this is one of the most amazing passages uh, in all of Scripture. 
This would have actually been one big long sentence that Paul wrote. When you look at the original manuscripts, verses 3 to 12 actually, were all just one big sentence. There was no punctuation whatsoever there. And so I'm going to start today by reading it that way because that's what Paul did. And you can imagine Paul, as he starts this letter, just being overwhelmed with the enormity of everything that God has done through Jesus and not being able to stop, just going blah, 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 and blurting it all out. And so we're going to read it all through the way that Paul wrote it, but then we're going to slow down and we're going to unpack each of the different verses together. So strap yourself in. Here we go. Paul writes, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. And God's now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. (laughs) Can you imagine being in the church in Ephesus as that was read out for the very first time? Many of us have read this passage before, and so there's bits of like, that's familiar to us. But can you imagine hearing that for the first time like that? It's just this amazing torrent that Paul unloads of all of the amazing things that God has done. And the key thing that I want us to keep in mind as we make our way through that is that Paul says all of those things are true. Paul uses past tense for everything that we've just read. All of these things are true. All of these things have happened. They're not things that are going to happen in the future. They're not things that we might get if we manage to do the right things. Paul says all of this stuff is true right now, has happened, is past. So let's explore what he says. In verse 3, he says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Now, when we think about the heavenly realms, we often think about maybe a picture like that. We think about the sky. We think about kind of heaven being up there somewhere. But whenever scripture talks about heaven, it's really talking about the place where God is, the place where God's way of life is experienced 100% of the time. That's what the heavenly realms are. And so Paul is saying all of these statements that he's about to unpack, including the truth that we are united with Jesus are true statements in the heavenly realms. All of these things are true where God is and where God's way of life is experienced 100% of the time. So the challenge for us is to say, well, if that's true where God is, do we allow those things to be true here in our lives in the present? Paul continues and he says in verse 4, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus. Can you think of a time in your life where you were chosen for something? You might think about being chosen for a job or chosen for a promotion or chosen to be the captain of a team or an organisation or chosen from a relationship context. Can you think of a time where you were chosen? 
There's something really, really significant that happens to us when we recognise that someone chooses us. I think back over all of the different jobs that I've had, and particularly in a ministry context. I think back to my very first part-time youth pastor job at Dernan Court Uniting Church, applying for that job and going through the interview process and being chosen for that role. Now, what's fascinating is that Ali was a part of that interview panel. So the choosing that happened at Dernan Court was a little more than just a part-time youth pastor job down the road. But then I think about being chosen to uh, move into full-time ministry at Ross Trevor Baptist Church. I think about being chosen to help plant a church with City Soul Uniting Church. I think about uh, the significant opportunity to be chosen to move to Canada and to work in a church called The Meeting House in Toronto. And then I obviously think about being chosen to be able to come here to Brooklyn Park Church of Christ. And I think again about the application process and the interview and then receiving the email from Ross saying, yes, we have chosen you to come and to be the pastor here at Brooklyn Park Church of Christ. There's something really, really significant that happens to us when we're chosen. The challenge here is to recognise that what Paul's talking about here is even more radical than that. Because most of the examples that we think of where we're chosen, it's us choosing something first. I chose to apply for all of those jobs. If you want to be the captain of a team, you choose to say, I would like to be the captain. Whatever it might be, we generally choose first and then we hope that we're chosen in return. But Paul is saying, before the world was created, God chose us. And that's a very, very significant difference Because it's a very different mindset to be able to say, God chose me before I had a chance to choose him, compared to me choosing God and hoping that he might accept me or he might choose me in return. When we recognise that God has chosen us before the creation of the world, that gives us a sense of security, it gives us a sense of confidence, recognising that we are accepted, we are loved, we have been chosen. All of those statements are true. When we think about it the other way, and we choose God first and we hope that he'll choose us in return, there's this sense of insecurity, these questions that we have. What if God doesn't accept me? What if God doesn't really love me? What if God doesn't really choose me? Those two different mindsets impact significantly on our perceptions of who God is, but even more in terms of our perceptions of what God wants from us and how God wants us to live our lives. So what specifically, as Paul said, that we have been chosen for? Well, he names two things. He says we were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless and also to be adopted into God's family. So the word holy, whenever we read that, whenever we sing that, whenever we talk about that, the word holy just means set apart, means set apart for God's specific purposes. And so Paul says that we have been chosen to be set apart for God's purposes. He chose us and said, I want you to fulfil my purposes in your life. But Paul also says that God chose us to be blameless, which means that we're without blemish, we're without fault in our lives. God has chosen us and sees us that way. So the challenge for us is to say, do we see ourselves the same way that God sees us? Do we focus on the reality that God has chosen us to be set apart? Do we recognise that God sees us as without fault? Or do we focus on all of the blemishes that we have in our own lives? Do we focus on all of the mistakes that we make, all of the times that we mess up? And is that how we see each other? Do we look at each other the way that God looks at us? 
Do we see each other as holy and set apart, blameless, without fault? Or do we focus on the mistakes that other people make, the blemishes that other people have in their lives? But Paul also says that we've been chosen to be adopted into God's family with all of the rights and privileges that come with that. And so once again, this is a challenge for us. Do we see ourselves the same way as God sees us? Do we see each other the way that God sees us? Do we accept our place in God's family or do we think we have to somehow try and earn our way into God's family? There are many people who are part of our church family who have lived experience of being adopted or of adopting someone into their family. And when someone is adopted, that's it. You are a part of the family. You don't have to then try and prove yourself or try and earn it, and then maybe later you end up being an official part of the family. Once you're adopted, you're in. You are a part of the family. So do we see ourselves that way? That God has adopted us, chosen us to be a part of his family? Or do we think that there's all these things that we have to try and do? All of these things that if we can maybe get that stuff right, God will eventually adopt us and welcome us into his family. Same question in terms of other people. Do we look at each other and see each other as chosen to be adopted into God's family, already in? Or are there things that we think other people need to do in order for them to be able to be a part of God's family? The other thing that's radical about all of this is that none of us are chosen at the expense of others. Normally, again, when we think about being chosen for something, it means that I get something and other people miss out. So if we apply for a job and other people have applied for that job and we get chosen for it, the other people miss out. But what's radical here is that Paul says this is true for all of us. Each one of us has been chosen, but every one of us have been chosen. Each one of us individually have been chosen by God, but every single one of us have been chosen by God to be holy, blameless, and adopted into God's family. But then Paul says this amazing statement in the second half of verse 5. He says, This is what God wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Again, we recognise all of this was planned before the creation of the world, and it gave God great pleasure to plan it all out. I have this picture of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the three different parts of God, sitting around a dinner table before they've created anything and having a brainstorming session, saying, what are we going to do? And you can imagine one of them saying, do you know what? We should find a way to allow others to experience what we get to experience. We should find a way to include others in this sense of unity and love and common purpose that we've got together as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as the Trinity. So you can imagine one of them saying, we should create these beings. Let's call them uh, people. Let's create people. And then they can be adopted into our family and they can experience all of the same things that we get to experience so then you can imagine one of them saying, okay, well, where are we going to put these people? And so then they start dreaming up the idea of creating the earth and creating the universe and everything that is existed around us. It would have been a pretty amazing brainstorming session to see all of those things as they started to flow out. This amazing plan that was concocted before anything was created. But this was always the plan that God had. 
And it's important because so often we can think that God's plan was to create a perfect world and create perfect beings who then came to this world created by God and messed it all up, made a mistake, messed up, and God then spent a few thousand years scratching his head saying, how do we solve this problem? And ends up saying, Jesus, you go and sort it out. Go and fix this problem and then maybe everything will be okay once again. That's plan B, where that wasn't the original plan. But we're told by Paul, this was plan A. From the very beginning, God always wanted to see us as holy, blameless, adopted into his family. And it gave him great pleasure to plan all of this out. So Paul says, we praise God for the glorious grace that he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He's showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Paul recognises that something needs to happen in order for us actually to be set apart, blameless and adopted fully into God's family. Something needs to happen in order for us to be forgiven for all of the times that we mess up, to be forgiven for this thing that we call sin. Now, when we talk about sin, the original word sin was a word that was used in common language in Paul's day, and it simply meant missing the mark. It was a term that was often used in an archery context where there was a bullseye, and if you missed the bullseye, then you missed the mark. That's what sin was. So the question is, well, if that's true then what is the perfect bullseye that we're all aiming for in our lives? And the answer is to love perfectly 100% of the time. That's the bullseye that we're all aiming for. And so sin is any time that we don't love perfectly 100% of the time. And another way of being able to understand that is that sin is basically selfishness. At the root of every sin that we can think of, ultimately, is selfishness. What's in it for me? What's my best interest? What's it all about me? So, we all mess up. I find it very easy to say, yes, I am someone who sins on a regular basis when it's framed that way. To be able to say, do I commit selfish acts? Yes. Do I live perfectly with love at the core of who I am 100% of the time every day? Not by a long shot. And so there's this recognition that somehow God sees us that way. Well, how does that happen? Because of Jesus. We're all forgiven for all of those times that we miss the mark, all of those times that we mess up. God forgives us for all of those times. But Paul also uses this image of our freedom having been purchased. And the picture that he's got here is of a slave whose freedom has been purchased. Someone who's in slavery and someone comes along and says, I'm going to pay the price to set you free from slavery. You're now able to go and live your life. You're no longer under that master. Those are the two images that Paul uses here to say all of this has been done. So once again, we're challenged to say, well, if that's true in the heavenly realms, if God has achieved all of those things, do we see ourselves as people who are forgiven? Do we see ourselves as people who are free? Or do we feel like we've got to somehow manage to make up for all of the times that we mess up? And Paul then finishes all of this out by saying that God's revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfil his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. 
What Paul says is that this plan that was created before the beginning of the world and that God's been working on has now been revealed to every single one of us. And the person who has achieved all of the things in that plan is Jesus. All of this has happened. All of this is true right now because of Jesus. So once again, let's recap all of the things that Paul says have been a part of that plan that are all past tense. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are united with Jesus. God has loved us and chosen us to be holy and without fault. God has decided in advance to adopt us into his family. God has purchased our freedom. God has forgiven our sins. God has showered his kindness on us. And God has revealed his mysterious will to every single one of us. And ultimately, this plan is going to culminate with everything being brought together under the authority of Jesus. And so the challenge is to say, if that's all true in the heavenly realms, and if that's where we're heading when we pass from this life into the next, if that's what eternity is going to be like, why don't we get a head start on it now? Why don't we start living that way in the here and now? Because all of this is true, has been accomplished because of Jesus. And this is the major difference between Christianity and every other belief system. One of the images that I find most helpful to think about how Christianity is different is by thinking about mountains in a mountain range. If we think of every belief system in the world as mountains in a mountain range, then all of the belief systems are about trying to get to the top of the mountain. So whether that's Islam or Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism, at the top of the mountain is heaven or enlightenment or nirvana or whatever it is. And so our goal is to try and make our way up the mountain. And with every other belief system, it's all about us. If I do the right things and don't do the wrong things, then I climb further and further up the mountain. And my hope is that by the time I finish my life, I've reached the top of the mountain and attained whatever the goal is of that religion. Christianity is the only one where God comes down off of the top of the mountain in the person of Jesus to the bottom where we are, before we even start climbing, scoops us up and puts us on top of the mountain and says, enjoy the view. Can you see things from my perspective? See things the way that I see them, the way that they're true in the heavenly realms. Following Jesus is not about earning, striving, working hard enough, hoping that somehow we can attain something by the time we get to the end of our lives. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has done for us and about living out of the freedom of that. So as we begin this new chapter together as a church, there are lots of things that we could focus on to say, well, hopefully these are the things that will unite us. We could focus on our service style and what we do when we gather together. We could focus on certain rituals or certain traditions we could focus on certain behaviours, the way that we act. We could focus on certain pieces of language, special words that we're going to use that we hope somehow will unite us. But our focus is not on any of those things as what's going to bring us together. Our focus is on being Jesus-centred. And that's not just true for us here at Brooklyn Park Church of Christ. That's baked into the DNA of who we are 
as churches of Christ. Since the very beginning, this was the key distinctive for us as a movement. We are the churches of Christ. At the end of the day, we come back to Jesus. We focus on Jesus. We centre ourselves on Jesus. We unite around Jesus and then we work the rest out as we go. One of the things that I've really appreciated as I've gotten to know Phil over the last few weeks and we've met each week and spent time sharing together and praying together is that he has this really great saying that if all of us fix our eyes on Jesus, then we will all ultimately end up walking in the same direction. And that's so true. If we focus on Jesus and all walk towards him, then regardless of where we're coming from, ultimately we're all going to walk in the same direction. That's the thing that's going to unite us. That's the thing that brings us together. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and who we are because of what Jesus has done. In a couple of moments, we're going to transition across and participate in communion. This also has been baked into the DNA of our movement since the very beginning as one of the key ways of us reminding ourselves of what we've just talked about that Jesus is the centre of who we are. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to be able to do a bit of reflecting personally and to use these two questions. What difference does being Jesus-centred make in my life? And what difference does being Jesus-centred make in the life of our church as we begin this new chapter together? So you might want to take some time to think back over all of those things that we've just talked about that are true because of Jesus. Are there any of those things that in a new way have struck you today about understanding what it means to be Jesus-centred? That you are chosen. Not you chose first and you hope that God's going to accept you, but God chose you before the creation of the world. That God sees you as holy, set apart, blameless, without fault. That you are adopted into God's family. That you are forgiven. That you are free. That all of these things are true, not because you get your life together enough, not because you're perfect enough, but because of Jesus. What difference does being Jesus-centred make in the way that you live your life and your relationship with God? But also for us as a church, as we begin this new chapter, what difference does being Jesus-centred make to us as a church? Are we waiting for something to happen that we hope might unite us down the track? Do we think that certain things need to happen in order for us to feel like we've got a sense of unity? Is there anything that would change for us if we intentionally say the core of who we are is Jesus-centred and we'll work everything else out as we go? I want to give you an opportunity to be able to do some reflecting on that. You can jot some thoughts down on your piece of paper. You can take some time to chat with the person next to you. Uh, But let's take a couple of minutes. What difference does being Jesus-centred make? Then we'll come back and pray and transition across to communion.
Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for who you are and for all that you have done for us. When we stop and reflect on this amazing plan that was concocted before the creation of the world, it blows our minds to think that before we were even made, you chose us. You wanted us. You wanted us to be included in your family and to experience everything that you as Father, Son and Holy Spirit have always experienced. But what's more amazing is that not only did you come up with a plan for that to happen, but you came up with the answer about how it would happen as well. And we thank you, Jesus, that because of your life, your death and your resurrection, we now can embrace these truths that all of this has happened for us. That in the heavenly realms where you are, where your way of life is experienced 100% of the time, all of these statements are true about us. We're sorry for all of the times when we forget that. And we're sorry for all of those times where we think that somehow we have to prove ourselves, we have to do enough in the hopes that these things might be true about us. We pray that you would help us to understand just how radical it is that you've done everything necessary for us to receive these things in our lives. And we pray that as we head out into another week, we would have the opportunity to be able to live from the freedom that comes from these truths. But we also pray that you would help us to see each other that way, to recognise that as much as these things are true for each one of us, these things are true for every one of us. And so help us to see each other the way that you see us and to recognise again that all of that has happened because of you, Jesus. And as we begin this new chapter as a church together, we pray that our unity would be because of you, because of all that you've done for us, because of all that you say is true, and because we choose to centre ourselves on you, to focus on you, Jesus, to walk towards you and allow our unity to come from that and then work the rest out as we go. In your name we pray. Amen.